Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, we're talking about electability and the myth of electability. So I started thinking about this when this poll came out the other day and said that Kamala Harris was in a virtual tie among Democratic voters in California. But at the same time, people thought that Biden, quote, had the best chance of defeating President Trump. They also thought he would be, quote, the best leader. What the hell does that mean? It's all tied into the myth of electability. That's not a comment about whether Harris can beat Biden or not. It's based in fact in a recent study that showed when women and people of color run for office, they win just as often as white men. So here to talk today about this is one of the nation's leading researchers into electability and the person who did that study, Brenda Carter director of the Reflective Democracy campaign. She's talking about electability next on It's All Political. Brenda Carter, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you for having me. You are in. You are calling us from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, correct? That's right. Okay, well, before we dive into this, let me just uh, give the listeners a few stats that, that may be pertinent here. So white men are 30% of the population, according to census figures, but they represent 62% of the people in political office. And women of color are 20% of the population, but only 4% of elective office holders. And men of color are 19% of the population and 7% of the people who are representing us in elective office. So... Many, we're going to be talking about electability today. What what does that mean, uh, in both in the popular sense of the word and in the real sense of the word, based on your research? Well, you know, electability is um, it's kind of like a it's like a ongoing Rorschach test. It means whatever the person who is using it wants it to mean or thinks it means. Um, but the sort of in the popular imagination and in conventional political wisdom, there's the idea that white men are the more electable candidates. That means that voters are more likely to choose them, and that when they're on the ballot, they're kind of the safest bet um, as candidates. We recently, just this summer, did a just very recently did an analysis of the 2018 elections, and and actually going back a bit farther than that as well, but looking at the demographics of candidates on our ballot as compared to who won. So the question was, are there demographic groups like white men, for instance, who win at greater rates than others when they're on the ballot? Um, And what we found is that the answer is no, that white men have no electability advantage at all. They don't win at greater rates than women of color, white women, or men of color. Um, that basically all demographic groups win their elections at the same rates when they're on the ballot and voters have the opportunity to vote for them. So electability is a myth in terms of when you're talking about race and gender. Yeah, that's right. There's no necessary advantage to being a you know a member of any particular demographic group once you're on the ballot. That, that's the key, is getting, is getting on the ballot. Um, so I want to run something, a couple things by you where we are seeing how, uh, despite the actual research that you've done, in, in our, our presidential race, this myth of electability still is out there. 
So a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about a new poll here in California among California Democrats that found that uh, Cal- uh, Kamala Harris was uh, basically in a statistical dead heat with Joe Biden. But in response to other questions, far more people thought Biden, quote, had the best chance of defeating President Trump. And they also thought he would be, quote, the best leader. Help us uh, decode what this means. Well, you know, I'm not an expert on voter psychology um, or voter behavior necessarily. But I I think what happens with this electability myth is that for really, you know, kind of understandable reasons, when you ask somebody, you ask the average person who seems more electable and you give them somebody who has held um, federal elected office before, um, who also demographically looks a lot more like everybody else who has held this office before in the history of the country. You know, it's not surprising that people say, yeah, I think he'll probably, you know, he seems like he has the best shot. Um, I don't think these are necessarily deeply considered, you know, positions by these voters. Um, it's a, sort of a, it feels like a common sense reaction, I think, but, you know, for a lot of people to say, yeah, well, I don't know, he was the vice president before, so sure. Um, I think, you know, also these ideas of what a what a leader looks like and what it means to be a leader uh, are deeply racialized and gendered because of our history and who has even had the opportunity to hold leadership positions that are publicly recognized, particularly in politics. So, you know, I think, again, if you're sort of asking someone on the fly, what do you think a leader looks like, you know, it's not surprising when they're thinking about the presidency, that they would identify somebody who looks like um, every one of the presidents we've had before except one. And, and a similar one, there's another poll that came out, uh, I think this was in July, and it asked Demo- Democratic voters two questions. Who'd they vote for in the, if the primary election were held today? And who would they vote for if they had a, quote, had a magic wand <laughs> and could make and make any of the candidates president they didn't have to beat anyone or win the election. Did you? I don't know if you did. You see this poll? I did. Yes, this, I is, did. this is this is this is this is interesting. So uh, Biden, as he does in in most surveys uh, these days, uh, comes out on top, followed by uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But when the respondents were asked to choose their uh, magic wand candidates, twenty one percent pointed to Warren, uh, while nineteen percent chose Biden and Sanders. What, what does this say to you? Well, I think it says a lot of things, but I think what I'd want to highlight is, again, how much our ideas of what's possible, you know, for all of us, how much of our, what our ideas of what's possible is shaped by what has happened before. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, it's, I think it's difficult for many people to imagine that um, it's possible for a woman and or a person of color to succeed in the system because there have been you know, particularly at the presidential level, because there have been virtually no examples of that before. So I think, again, you know, it it speaks to, um, on the one hand, how much interest and desire there is for leaders who look different, who represent a different set of life experiences than the leaders we've had before, particularly at the presidential level. But also, I think, uh, a concern or a worry that... um, you know that the that the system is sort of too entrenched, that it's too hard um, for non-traditional candidates to break in and succeed. So these are almost like two forces uh, 
sort of competing forces that voters, uh, at least Democratic voters, are, are fighting with. That we'd like to see more diverse candidates. We'd like to support them, but at the same time, I don't know if they could win. Right, and you know, it's interesting. In addition to our research that we've been talking about um, around who holds elected office and who wins. We've also done a fair amount of public opinion research on these questions, and it's really it's relevant to this because what we've found consistently is that a majority of voters, regardless of party identification, actually support more women and people of color in elected office. They think that would be a good thing. They're actually in favor of it. And again, this isn't just Democrats; it's, it's everyone. Um, but simultaneously, they perceive um, that. Uh, that women and people of color face greater barriers um, to elected office. So I think that that captures the tension that you just mentioned, that there is a real desire for different kinds of leaders, and at the same time, uh, I think a correct perception that the system is not as welcoming to them. Right. Have you What, what kind of stuff have you noticed? Um, we, we have five women running for president, and certainly in the, uh, the major among the major candidates, uh, Elizabeth Warren, as we said, uh, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, Tulsi Gabbard. How's that kind of influenced or shaped the, the presidential race as we've seen it? You know, well, I think one is just at a baseline level, it has done so much to normalize the idea that a woman could be a contender for the presidency. Obviously, we know that that's possible based on 2016, but, um, you know, having a greater range of women, multiple ones, um, different racial backgrounds, different professional backgrounds, I think just really changes that sense of what's possible. Um, so I think that is a huge impact that this has had. I think the other impact is that, um, you know, both in terms of gender and in terms of race, because there's so much more, uh, a much greater range of people um, racially and in terms of gender, on the uh, on the stage, so to speak, or you know, running um, running for the Democratic nomination, right. I think the um, there's had to be a much more direct grappling with the with the life experiences of those people and the experiences of women and people of color historically in the United States that traditionally is really kind of excluded from these processes. You know, it might be sort of acknowledged in some kind of fleeting way, but I think having people who have actually lived the experiences on the stage, you know, running um, successful campaigns um, has changed the dynamics. So you see things, for instance, you know, obviously we've heard a lot about the um, encounter between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in the first debate around school segregation and busing. But, you know, similarly, I think we've seen Joe Biden having to account for um, his role in the Anita Hill hearings, for instance, Um, having to deal with criticisms about his um, relationships to women and the way he, um, you know, interacts with them physically. And I don't, I'm not sure that we would be seeing that if the the lived experience of women and people of color weren't so directly represented in the democratic field. There's, a, there's another uh, uh, exchange on the debate stage in the first debate that was kind of interesting. You had uh, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, the guy who's, you know, very progressive. And he said uh, the, the topic of abortion came up and he said, quote, I, it should not be an option in the United States of America for any insurance company to deny coverage for the right of choice. I'm the only candidate here 
who has passed the law protecting a woman's reproductive rights and health insurance, and the only candidate who passed the public option. I respect everyone's goals and plans here, but we have one candidate who has advanced the ball. We have to have access for everyone. So when he said that, Amy Klobuchar, again, one of the uh, female candidates, said, quote, I want to say that there are three women up here who have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose, and she got a round of applause. How does that work? Because here you have Jay Inslee just kind of stating his record, which was accurate. But uh, Klobuchar fighting back saying, well, hey, you know, hey, old white guy, what are you doing talking about this? You're, are you – was he – was she – was he getting uh, dock points for mansplaining here, or what? What was going on there? <laughs> well, I always like to see people having points docked for mansplaining. Personally, um, I, <laughs> I I don't know if that was what was happening there, um, but I do think it changes the, dy- the dynamic when you have people speaking really from lived experience. You know, um, and um, and women are you know the only people who can do that around the question of choice and reproductive justice. Um, so, you know, I don't know what was in Amy Klobuchar's mind when she said that, but um, I think that is a, it's kind of an example of what you were asking about, you know, how the presence of so many women in the campaign or in the, in the field has changed the dynamics. Um, I think uh, you have people just saying, you know, I, we've lived these things. We've grappled with these things just as human beings. And, um, we we bring a different perspective because of that. Uh, Harris, as you as you noted, uh, got uh, I guess the 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 Washington uh, punditry uh, uh, blessed her as uh, being electable after she after her exchange with Biden. And she uh, you know she's been asked this a number of times. We've all asked her about this about the uh, the the conversation about she says the conversation by pundits about electability and who can sp- speak to the Midwest. She said, but when they say that, they usually put the Midwest in a simplistic box in a narrow narrative. And too often their definition of the Midwest leaves people out. It leaves out people in the room who help build cities like Detroit. It leaves out working women who are on their feet all day, many of them working without equal pay. And the conversation too often suggests that certain voters will only vote for certain candidates regardless of where – whether all their ideas will lift up all families. It's, that's a, um, it's, a, it's a good argument. But is that the challenge for for female candidates and and candidates of color when they try and talk about this stuff? Do um, uh, do they do they do they risk being pigeonholed in some way? Yeah, I think that can happen, and you know certainly there's research on you know, the sort of different standards around likability um, for women candidates as opposed to men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think these things play differently for candidates of color often than they do for white candidates. Um, but I think the, you know, I, I think, again, voters, and again, across the, the political spectrum, they're, they actually want new leaders. They, it's very clear that the American people are extremely disillusioned with the system as it is and with the kind of um, conventional approach to politics. So um, I don't really think the problem here is voters. Um, and again, you know, our research on electability shows that when voters are offered the opportunity for to select women and people of color to represent them, they do at the same rate that they select white men. So I don't, you know, I don't think that really the problem here or the, the obstacle that non-traditional candidates face is with voters. Yeah, I think it, it, to the extent that there is one a problem in kind of popular perception or opinion. 
it's much more with the the kind of um, you know the kind of media coverage and the um, you know kind of the pundit class, if you will, right. um, that you know can have a tendency to kind of recirculate. Um, old conventional wisdom about what works and what doesn't. So what, give us an example of how the punditry might do that. Well, I think the electability example is, uh, or the electability issue is a, is a really good example. Um, if, um, if voters are continuously told that, you know, in various ways, directly or indirectly, that white male candidates are the more electable ones, in spite of, um, you know, significant evidence to the contrary, at a certain point, that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So you end up having political gatekeepers, you know, like major donors, power brokers of various kinds who sort of, you know, contribute money and clear the path for candidates. Um, you end up having them kind of fall in line between, the, fall in line behind the candidates who are, who are, um, you know, presumed to be or described as being more electable. And then, you know, that sort of picks up steam, and pretty soon that person is, in fact, more electable because they have more resources, they have more support, popular opinion is sort of coalescing behind them because, again, the belief is that they're the most likely to win. How, how difficult is it to tease out, you know, someone who with a lot of name recognition, like Joe Biden, he's, the man's been in an elective office for almost 50 years, when you go back to his local office days, um, and uh, and electability um, and and because this this poll jumped up popped up the other day, uh, Quinnipiac poll that showed among Black Democrats Biden still gets forty seven percent of the votes of Black Democrats, sixteen percent for Sanders, eight for Warren, and one percent for Harris, and among female Democrats uh, Biden got thirty one percent. 24 for Warren, 10 for Sanders, and 7 for Harris. How, how much of that is name recognition? How much of that is just the the uh, punditocracy uh, reinforcing these gender and racial stereotypes? And, and how what's the challenge for researchers like you to, to tease all that stuff out? Yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult to disentangle these things. You know, as I said earlier, I think that's, you know, one of the, re- one of the, uh, the things that you point to are part of the reason why Joe Biden keeps coming up as the most perceived as the most electable candidate. You know, he was the vice president. He has had a long career in at federal at the federal level in elected office. Um, so, uh, you know, he has tremendous name recognition. Um, he has tremendous uh, connections and uh, kind of resources and power throughout the political playing field. Um, and, you know, I, I, so it does become very difficult to separate out what exactly is going on um, when, when we're, you know, when polls come up with these kinds of findings, which is really honestly one of the reasons why I don't think that these polls are particularly useful at this point. I don't think because they're it's really too early or, or what? Right. And I think, you know, as I was saying earlier, if you ask people who seems the most electable, it's not terribly surprising that. And the average voter chooses the person who was the vice president, you know, as compared to everybody else. So, you know, but that's a different question from who people will, as, you know, as you said, with these other vote uh, polls, that's a different question from who people want to vote for or who they will vote for. Does this uh, electability myth um, vary when we're talking about local and statewide candidates? Is it more intense? Is it less intense? Or is it about the same? Well, that's 
really interesting thing is that it's really consistent up and down the ballot. Um, there's no significant variation for level of office. You know, it's, it's not as though, um, you know, uh, white men have no electability advantage at one level, but they do at another. Um, it's really consistent across the board. Um, all demographic groups win at basically the same rate. And even if you dig a little bit deeper and go into specific, more specific groups, so if you dig into um, beyond, for instance, the broader category of women of color and you look at African-American women versus Asian-American women versus Latino women, that's also consistent. There's no, um, there's really no variation among the groups. If you want to get really specific, women of color do um, outperform other groups when they're on the ballot. They actually win at slightly greater rates. Um, so, and that's, again, quite consistent up and down the ballot at different levels of office. So this is really, um, this electability advantage is a myth really at all levels of office for um, no matter which group you're talking about. And what has the influence of President Trump been on on uh, raising the number of uh, women uh, and people of color uh, winning office? Do you think, is that ir- irrespective of, uh, does he have any factor in this at all? Are people voting against him when they're voting for these candidates? Yeah, well, again, you know, we don't, I can't say for sure why people, you know, we don't study voter decision making, but I can say that when we looked at um, elections going back to 2012, um, so 2012 through 2018, um, we saw, you know, starting at 20, going back to 2012, you know, pretty regular increases in the numbers of women and people of color running for and winning office. Um, but then after the 2016 elections, the numbers jumped. So, um, there was already progress underway and in, you know, candidates and office holders were becoming somewhat more reflective of the American people. But there was really a, um, supercharge effect, um, post 2016. So, you know, I can't say for every voter in America what was driving that. Um, or for every person, of, you know, every person who was running, um, what mo- motivated them to do so. But it's really clear that the results of the 2016 election um, had an impact on uh, getting more women and people of color running and more winning. So I want, want you to put on your uh, future, your futuristic cap now. And uh, when when do you think we will see a um, a Congress, a state legislature? Governors who, uh, in their race and gender, ethnicity, will reflect uh, America truly. How 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 far away are we from that? A decade at this at this trajectory? Twenty years? When how how far away are we? Or do you think they're they're? What what do you think? Well, I have two simultaneous um, contradictory answers to that question. Ooh, I love um, that. Yes. <laughs> Yes. One is um, that just looking at Congress, which is obviously just a small slice of elected office in America, but um, before the, uh, the 2016 election outcome, the rate of change, so the rate of increase of women in Congress, was so slow that it would have taken at least 100 years to reach 
equality in Congress, right? So for oh, Congress yeah. to be half women. But after the 2016 election, um, the rate of change spiked so significantly that if that rate of change continued, we would have equality in 10 years. Hmm. So it's a very different scenario. Um, so that, you know, again, that's just Congress, not elected office on the whole, but a very interesting change, I think, right. in, um, in the trajectory we're on. Now, having said that, I also think that there is nothing automatic about this, these increases in women and people of color. You know, it's not as though, you know, I think sometimes people think, well, you know, the demographics of the country are changing and surely, you know, the people who hold elected office, that, that will catch up. You know, sure, maybe there's a little bit of a lag, but we'll, we're getting there and we just kind of have to wait. And I actually don't agree with that at all. I think that, um, one, if you look at women, that's a, um, a pretty powerful cautionary tale. We've been half of the population forever. And we're nowhere near 50% of political office holders. Yeah, it's about 30, 31% or somewhere in that. Yeah, 31%, I think, overall. So we're, you know, still um, significantly excluded from political decision-making roles. I think, in addition to women being a cautionary tale, well, I, I think the thing that that illuminates is that the system is absolutely entrenched and is producing these numbers for a reason. The demographic mismatch between those who hold political office and those who live in the United States is not an accident. The system is set up to produce this result. It was never intended to have reflective decision-making. Um, political power has been in the hands of white men since the very beginning, and through an incredible amount of hard work and organizing and fighting, women and people of color have gained access as citizens, as voters, and to some extent as political office holders. But the system is still absolutely set up to exclude women and people of color and to concentrate hands in concentrate power in the hands of, of the group that has always held it. So there's nothing automatic about these changes. Um, and I think we can see from the difference between, you know, just in the last couple of years, how much work it, change, it takes to even make a dent in the, the mismatch, the demographic mismatch in political power in America. Right? There's been tremendous amount of organizing and activism and um, uh, kind of marches and um, groups popping up around the country to um, support new kinds of leaders, both women and people of color, for political office. And that did have an impact. As I said, we saw a real spike in the numbers after the 2016 election. But as you said, women are still only 31% of office holders, and people of color are still incredibly underrepresented as well. So, um, so that's my, my simultaneous conflicting contradictory answer to your question. I think there's no way to know how far we are. Um, and then it will be a question of how much organizing and work happens to change the system and, um, and how quickly the system yields to those efforts. All right. Brenda Carter, thank you so much for being on. It's all political. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. 
I'd like to thank Brenda Carter for joining us on today's podcast. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're electable or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.